Christ. We're in the Advent season. I'm going to read you the Advent scripture, Luke 2, 1 through 7. It says, at this time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. That is Advent. Advent is one word and it just literally means arrival. When we talk about Advent season, when we talk about going through a time of Advent, and I'm sure many of you have heard of Advent and wondered what exactly is that, it is, it's just a season that comes during Christmas time where we celebrate the arrival of Jesus. And traditionally, it's done with four different weekends, or if there's five, you know, we get creative with theology and we add the fifth, repentance, right? But it usually revolves around hope, love, joy, and peace. Those are the four Advent, uh, four Advent candles, and all my Catholic friends, they light those candles every week. They walk through the tradition of Advent very, very beautifully, and we decided as a church, we've never done this before, to just walk through Advent, and we're walking through those four things, hope, love, joy, and peace. Go buy the candles, get them on Amazon, light them in your home, be a good Catholic if you want to, um, and walk through the Advent season with us, okay? So this first week is about hope. When we talk about the arrival of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus for us means hope. Man, you got to sleep in. The 930 didn't. You got to sleep in and you can't get excited about hope? You can't get excited about hope? It was a week putting for par on the 13th hole of the back nine. Yeah, yeah. All right. We'll figure it out. If you can't get excited about, I, I, if I can't get you excited about hope by the end of this, we got to find someone to replace me because there's something missing within our body. Listen, we're, we're in this season of consumption, a season of chaos, a season when our world's going crazy, and yet we've got one thing. His name is Jesus, and he arrived, and what does he give us in his arrival? Hope. How about this? Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. This hope, not a hope, this hope, very, very particular distinction. This hope that we have, this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. I love that. That's a tattoo verse. You college kids, that's a tattoo verse. Be on your ankle, back of your forearm, whatever. But it, that, that we have this hope that is an anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Jesus has already gone in there for us. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 10, 19 through 24. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way 
through the curtain into the most holy place. And since we have a great high priest, that word is actually greater. It's not great, it's greater. It it means uh, it's the sign, right? Greater than. We have a greater high priest who rules over God's house. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him, for our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope. I got hope for you by the end of this. To the hope that we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promises. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. We have this hope that is an anchor for our souls. Anchors, this is a very important contextual illustration for us to grasp. In a Mediterranean culture, everything, all big time travel was done by sea. Ships were airplanes of the day, okay? So if you had a trip plan, you got on a boat and that boat took you to neighboring cities or across to other cities and most of the cities lacked the infrastructure to port these giant ships that would take people and travel people and transport goods. So what would usually happen is they would park the boat about 25 to 50 yards off of the shore, drop anchor, and then when they dropped anchor, they would put smaller boats out that would transport the goods to the shore or transport the people to the shore. So if you didn't have an anchor, you couldn't get off the boat. If you didn't have something holding you in place, you couldn't get what you needed, you couldn't deliver what you wanted to deliver, an anchor was a critical must-have. How many of you have been fishing without an anchor? Nobody, great, the, the, uh, one, one, one outdoorsman. Thank you for being the man in the place, right? <laughs> 930 had several, I'm just saying, you know. Um, so you, 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 I, I did this one time, I, I'm trying to remember, I went kayak, the last time I went kayak fishing, I was less two kids. That'll tell you how, how my life's been the past five years, right? Um, I had two less kids, but I remember I went with Mike and Jeremy and, and some of the guys that serve and load in. And if you've ever gone kayak fishing without an anchor, it's miserable. Like, it was a windy day, and I, you, you cast, and by the time you're reeling it, you're like completely turned around, and you're trying to paddle to turn, you're like trying to paddle and reel at the same time. Like, all these videos you see of guys hanging these big fish on Instagram out of kayaks, they're lying to you. That's really good editing. That doesn't happen. At least it didn't happen for me. It happened to me. I would cast, and by the time I would be reeling in, I couldn't even see where I cast it anymore. But I have friends in Louisiana that love this. They call it the Cajun sleigh ride. Here's what they do. They get kayaks, and they go out into marshes, and they hang these Big bull reds, just giant redfish. And when they hook into them, they reel a little bit, and then they let that redfish pull them all over the bayou. They go, look at me, Bob, on the Cajun sleigh ride, right? And they're just, they're riding, and they're letting, and this fish is pulling them all over the sea. He said, the only thing that's terrible about it is once you finally reel the fish in and he gives up, you look back and realize that thing drug you for half a mile, right? So you got to paddle back, and you got to get back to where you were, but it was the Cajun sleigh ride. Can I tell you something life will take you for a Cajun sleigh ride if you don't have an anchor for your soul if you don't have hope as an anchor for your soul little things will become big things 
Every problem will be the walls are falling and caving in and the sky is coming down. Your life will be unstable. Your nerves will constantly be shot. You'll be worried about everything. It'll be a crippling fear that will overcome you. Why? Because your soul isn't anchored. That's the message of hope. That's the arrival of hope. What does hope do? It gives us something to anchor our souls. It gives us a stability when everything else is crazy. How does this arrival of Jesus do this? The author of Hebrews, Hebrews gives us two, two things that change with our hope and then one action that we take from it. We have the holy of holies, we have the great high priest, and we have the actions that we do because of it. I'll say it this way. We get access, we get a hero, and then we do something about it. We get access, what does the arrival of Jesus mean? When somebody asks you this week, what, was, what is Advent? What, is, what do you celebrate during this Christmas season? I celebrate hope, that hope gives me access that I didn't previously have. It gives me a hero of my life, greater than anything that I face, and it calls me to do good works and to love people around me. There you go, let's start with the first one. Hope gives access. Hope gives us access. What is a foundational pillar of our theology of hope? That hope now takes us to a place that we could not previously go. Hebrews 6 verse 19. This hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. Later on in the book, the author of Hebrews says this, 10, 19 through 20. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place. Circle the word boldly. Do you realize hope will lead you to be bold when other people will be afraid and not take action? A bold hope will lead you to live in a way and to do things and to act in a certain way and respond in a certain way that no hope and no anchor will leave you crippled in fear to do. We, have you ever, you, you've, you've heard, I mean, we have, we've walked through medical things with our children and it's, it's really, how, how many of you get that, you know, like, bless your heart, oh, it's cute that you're praying for healing, but let me, let me give you a little dose of reality, Right? I mean, we've, we've changed doctors a number of times over stuff like this. And I, I'm not bashing on medical professionals. We've also had doctors that have saved our children's lives, right? So I'm a huge fan. But when it comes to this, when it comes to like, hey, I'm praying and I'm believing God to heal my children and I'm praying over my children, what are we dealing with? And I get something like, well, that, you know, bless your heart, but here's what you're gonna be dealing with the rest of your life. That's what you say, that's not what God says. I'm gonna trust God for some, I'm gonna have a bolder hope that takes me to a different place than your logic is willing to let you go. I'm gonna have a hope, and whether God does it or not, that's where I'm going to place my heart. It's because where I've been called to place my heart. Jesus gives me an access to a hope that will give me the boldness to live differently than everything that is happening around me. It gives us access, hope, opens the door. Hope welcomes us in. Hope gives us the presence of God. You weren't allowed to enter into the holy of holy. Let me finish the verses first, okay? Hebrews 10, 19 to 20. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly, boldly, your hope is not cowardly, your hope is not weak, 
Your hope is not soft. Your hope is not unspoken. Your hope's not a whisper, it's a yell. Your hope is bold. You have a hope about we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus. By his death, Jesus opened a new and life-giving way through the curtain into the most holy place. Here is why that word boldly is, is fun contextually, because the holy of holies was a place that you could not go into unless you were the high priest. And if the high priest had not even gone through the cleansing rituals and changed their outfits before they walked into the holy of holies, they died it was a death sentence to walk into the Holy of Holies or to touch the Ark of the Covenant of God's presence or any of those things when you weren't the high priest. It was a death sentence. So now they're saying what used to scare people to death fills you with hope. You can go into that space now. And not only can you go into that space, but you don't go in there like, man, I know people that have died doing this before. I think I'll give this a shot. No, you walk through the door. Hope gives you access the presence of God that satisfies your soul, that fills you, that leads you, that guides you, that protects you, that encourages you that you did not otherwise have access to you. That's why we're bold with our hope. I see him in here. I hear him amen in me. Ezra's here with Anna on the front row. Um, one of the, the things when I, when I think about hope and access, you know, Ezra had a really long, he was 19 day NICU stay or something like that. And we started off downtown. And when we were downtown, uh, that was like stage four critical NICU, critical condition. You're on the, you know, very fourth floor of the thing. And you could stay there the whole time, right? Like I was, I think the first two days, I slept four hours total. There was four hours total when I wasn't in there um, because they have this rule you can be with them as long as you want, you just can't sleep, right? So it's like I start dazing off in the NICU at like 3 a.m. And I'm like, I'll go back to the hotel, sleep two hours, and come back. But we were just with him all the time. And then once he got cleared at the downtown NICU, they transferred him to Conroe's NICU. So when we get to Conroe's NICU, he was transported by ambulance back to Conroe's NICU. And I didn't know this. And again, these NICU nurses, they're heroes, right? They're, they're some of the greatest people on the planet that cared for our children. This is not bad NICU nurses. This is traumatized parents walking through pain, right? But we get there at 7 o'clock, and I didn't know the Conroe NICU, they do shift change at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. And for 30 minutes, you're not allowed in the NICU with your child. So we arrive at 7 p.m. by ambulance, and when we show up there, Ezra is, is brought into the back. Anna comes up, and we come up to the front, and we, we knock on the door, and we press the button, and we tell them who we are. And they say, oh, well, you're not allowed in here. Talk about mama bear, right? When Anna's cheeks go red and her lips start to quiver, <laughs> hands start to knuckle up like this, I'm like, oh man, you're not telling mama she's not getting near baby. And, and we're like, what do you mean? Like, oh, we're on shift change. And we're like, our child was transported here by ambulance. We want to make sure he's still alive. Oh, he'll be fine. You can see him in 30 minutes. Like, what? So, I, I mean, I remember they were waiting outside. There's these, like, black leather chairs that just sit. I, I mean, I still have 
PTSD from them, right? And I remember sitting there waiting for 30 minutes. 30 minutes would pass, and we'd finally get to go in there. And I mean, we'd beeline it right to him, and we'd see him laying there like, okay, he's good. Everything's good. And then we'd stay as long as we could with him, and then we'd go back home. And then the next day, we'd come back, and, you know, they'd kick us out at shift change. And then anytime they, they checked him, like, they would do an echo on his heart, or they'd replace his IV. Oh, my goodness, if you've ever seen a baby get an IV, it is, and they couldn't find veins in his arms, so they did it in his head. He's got this like IV sticking out of his head, but they would kick us out. They're like, oh, we got his IV blue, so we got to change his IV. Can you step out? And here we are, and we're sitting outside of the room where our baby is, and we're praying, and we're wandering, and we're like, oh, that's his cry. That's his cry. And Anna's like, I'm going through this door. I don't care. You know, but we're just, we're, we're outside of the room, right? And then I remember when we finally got to the end, the 19th day, he had to do the car seat test. Actually, a few days before that. And so he's got to sit in his car seat for 90 minutes. They kick you out of the room for the car seat, right? Like, golly. So we're sitting out there. We're timing it. I'm that dad. I got my stopwatch. I'm like, come on, boy. You got 90 minutes in you, you know? And the nurse would come out and she would say, hey, yeah, 45 minutes in. Hey, I'm so sorry. He failed the car seat test. And we'd go in there and we'd see him. I see you right now, right? And we'd see him and then they'd, they had to wait 24 hours. So they'd kick us out 24 hours later. And we'd go back out, sit outside of the room, wondering how he's doing, and 60 minutes later, he would, they would, the nurse would come out, I'm so sorry, he didn't pass. I'm like, oh, okay, so the next day, 24 hours later, we're just waiting, and time's ticking down, and we're outside of the room, and 85 minutes in, I'm like, oh, don't tell me, don't tell me. She comes out, and she says, hey, he's got five minutes left, be quiet. So we're like sneaking around, we're looking at him, and he's sitting there, and his oxygen is good, and the monitor's good, and the seconds are counting down, three, two, one, he passed! We were so excited, four hours later, we were out of there, and guess what? We've never been separated from him since! Right? Why? Because when you get that access, when there's not a door blocking you and keeping you from where your heart wants to be, you have this peace, you have this joy, you have this excitement about you. That is the arrival of hope. It gives us access. You enter into the Holy of Holies. You enter into the presence of God. You are no longer having a door that is separating you from the God who is longing for you. You're able to enter into his presence, to experience his joy, his grace, his mercy, his peace. That's the arrival of hope. But not only do we get access, but we get access by way of a hero. Scripture would call it the great high priest. I call it the hero. Hebrews 6 verse 20. Jesus has already gone in there for us. How do we have this access? Because Jesus went in. He has become our eternal high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 10, 21 through 22 says, and since we have a great high priest, remember that's even, that word is greater, since we have a greater high priest, who rules over God's house. Let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts fully trusting him. 
For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean and our bodies have been washed with pure water. This is a beautiful, again, Jewish illustration. When it was the Day of Atonement, the high priest would have to take the blood of the animal. So say you sinned and you got a bull and you brought that bull to the high priest and you said, I have sinned, here is my sin offering. The, great, the high priest would take that offering, take some of the blood, sprinkle it on the atonement chair, the mercy seat or whatever you wanna call it and then offer it in your place to be a propitiation for your sins. It's Leviticus 16, 14. It says, then he must take some of the blood of the bull dip his finger in it, and sprinkle it on the east side of the atonement cover. He must sprinkle blood seven times with his finger in front of the atonement cover. So what are we saying now? That Jesus became our high priest. There is no barrier that's blocking us, and there is no offering that we have to make because the blood of Jesus has been sprinkled upon us. So how can we walk into the presence of God and it not cost us our lives? The blood of Jesus, he's gone before us and his blood is on us so that now we can experience the presence of God and have a hero to our faith that takes us into spaces we've never been and lead us beyond situations we could have never handled on our own. You know, um, I, this, we, we have been in, and this is by, by no means, like we have, we have a, a friend who, Anna has a friend who, who lost a child in the past month. So like this is by no means poor me, right? People are facing way bigger challenges and way bigger problems than I am, but um, this is more of like a testimony of hope. Since October, we, we have had, and we've talked about this, this has probably been one of just like the most uniquely crazy seasons of our life. In fact, I wrote all of them down. There's seven things that we've walked through the past, since October to right now that are just like, what? This is absolutely crazy. So if I've missed your text the past month or two, um, super sorry about that. Let me give you my greatest excuses, okay? Number one, we had both our cars break down. Anna's twice. Anna's broke down. My truck broke down. Anna's car broke down again. And then you're trying to figure out who's picking up the kids and who's at work and how do I get to work and who my car pulling with. And it was just crazy. And then we had sickness in our home for a month. There was a fever in our home the entire month of October. It was just like passed along to each kid. It was crazy. After that, Anna takes Ezra to the pediatrician and we get all of these follow-up visits for medical challenges. So she's having to drive here and she's having to take him here and she's having to do all of these follow-up appointments that we have going on. In the middle of that, Anna starts having chest pains in the, in the middle of the night one night, winds up having to go to the ER, goes out to get in her car, turns it on, it, it breaks down on her when she turns it on in the driveway. So she takes my truck to the ER while I'm having her car towed. It's 2 a.m. and we're trying to, you know, figure all of this out. And then when she gets back, what, what happened after that? I've kind of blacked out and saw red at this point. Um, Oh, and then we take Zion to the dentist, and when we get to the dentist, it's for a cavity to be filled. They open up the cavity and realize the cavity's gone to the root, so they have to do an emergency tooth extraction. So she's out. They rip her tooth out when it's supposed to be a cavity. Imagine her waking up to that and trying to explain to her, oh, there's a, there's a tooth that's been pulled out of your head. Your mouth hurts, and you can't have Chick-fil-A, right? She's like, <laughs> you know? So then we're like walking her through this recovery of all of this, 
And then we buy Anna a new car because it breaks down a second time. After a car breaks down a second time, we have to buy a new car. Then last week, to top it all off, our heater goes out. So we got to replace our heater. We've, we've <laughs> like that's, that's like once a week since October. Just like, and, and you get to this point where like, I'll tell you, these situations, they just rob you of focus. They take time. They take energy. They cost a lot of money and they can take my time. They can take my energy. They can take my focus. They can take my money. The thing they can't take is my hope. Because my hope is in a person, not a situation. I've never had my hope in a car or a heater or money in the first place. So you can have it all. You can take it all. The one thing you can't take from me is where my hope lies. That's what we're saying. We have a new hero to our hope. It's just like Job said, though he slay me, yet I hope in him. Job say, I don't care what happens, he can take my life if he wants to. My hope's still going to rest in him. Where else would I go? Do you realize this? Where you place your hope is a choice, and challenges will reveal where you've placed it. You choose where you place your hope. You place your hope in your savings account. You place your hope in another person that you're married to. You place your hope in your friends. You place your hope in your social media presence. You place your hope in these things. And challenges with those things will reveal to you where you've placed your hope. And hopefully they will redirect you to the hero of your hope who says, no, 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 no. I take you to places you cannot go on your own. I have sprinkled your head with the blood that purifies you so you can enter into the presence of God. I am the one who keeps my promises. In fact, that's where we finish. So, holy place, high priest. Foundational theology of our hope. We go into the Holy of Holies and we have a great high priest. We have access to the presence of God and we have a high priest that has atoned for our sins once and for all. Therefore, we have hope. What do we do because of this hope? Hebrews 10, 23 through 24. Let us hold tightly without wavering. You do not have a choice. You don't loosely hold on to your hope and then throw it out the window when something goes wrong. You don't loosely hold on to your hope until two or three problems pile up and then it's chicken little and the, fall, the sky is falling and the walls are caving in, right? Like, you don't just have a flipping hope. You got a hope that you hold on to when things are breaking down and things are going nuts and diagnoses aren't what you wanted and everything's falling apart. You know, though he slay me, I will hope in him, right? That's what you have in your hope, and here is why. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be two things, trusted and he keeps his promises. Why do we hold on to hope? Because God is trustworthy and he keeps his promises. Verse 24, here is what we do because of it. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. So what do we do? Because hope has given us access to the presence of God. Hope has led us and atoned for our sins so that we can be in relationship with the Lord. So we cling tightly to this hope because God is trustworthy and he keeps his promises. And what is my reaction to all of this? I'm loving and do good works. I'm loving and I do good works. No matter what, I've got hope and I'm gonna love people and I'm gonna do good works. I say this all the time, but Christians should be the most loving, generous, gracious, 
peaceful, joyful people on the face of the planet. Let's say it this way. We should be so filled with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control that the entire world, whether they believe what we believe or not, or see things the way we see or not, are still saying about us, man, I don't know if I can jump on board, but my goodness, that's the most loving person I've ever met. That's the most joyful person. They have a hope that I don't have. They have a peace that I don't have. They have a control about them that everyone else is going nuts, and there is a stability to them. They have a faith that gets them through. That's the draw of the gospel. The draw of the gospel is not how good of a debate skill that you have. It's how loving and gracious and generous and kind and peaceful you are. And those boil out of our hope because we have something the world doesn't. We have a hope that the world doesn't. So we love in a different way than the world does. And we do good works in a different way than the world does. That's why we're buying 102 gifts for kids in our community. That's why we're doing it. Because why are we doing that? We have hope. There is a hope in our hearts that we want to pass along. And that's why we're praying over these names and we're believing God. Listen, you have to have hope for the future in order to do something great in the present. Nothing illustrates this more than a story I read. Listen, this is, this is fascinating. 60 years ago, a town in Maine disappeared underwater when a utility company built a dam on the Dead River. The flooding started in 1949, but it took two to three years to submerge the homes in the streets. And when the utility company bought the land and began to build the dam. They went house by house through this, this community in Maine and they told each resident, hey, we have bought this property and we're building a dam and this area is going to fill up with water and the homes are gonna be underwater. So we'll buy your property from you right now and you can live here for free for the next couple of years and then when it comes time to move, you'll, you'll have to move, right? So they, they go through and do this and a year after the utility company built the dam, a writer visited the area, and, and it used to be his hometown, and he said, it used to be my hometown, but now it's a town with an expiration date. And he said, what used to be this tidy, beautiful, wonderful community has now turned into this dilapidated, broke-down area and then he asked these questions he says why would you replace a window when the home's going underwater why would you fill potholes when the whole place is flooding why would you fix a fence when a wave is going to come crashing against it and take it down and then he summarized his entire article by saying this i thought this was brilliant he said what i realized was this where there is no faith in the future, there is no power in the present. When you don't have hope for your future, you've got no power in your present. When you don't have, and what, what is, that's what we're selling. Advent, arrival, what do we have? Hope. And where does our hope lie? Ultimately, in the death, burial, resurrection, and return of Jesus, and our reunion with him in eternity. That's our hope. And when we're constantly looking towards that hope, we can be present with power right now. You lose your power when you forget about your hope. 
You lose your inspiration to be a loving, joyful, gracious, merciful community when you forget about the hope that you have for your future. But with hope, we become the force that transforms the world. With hope, we become the community of faith that lives out the arrival of Jesus in a way that is characterized by love and good works. 